That's right, folks. All aboard the USS Farragut. The Big Blue 82 podcast has just set sail. You're listening to the official podcast for the 1982 Farragut High School Admirals of Knoxville, Tennessee. The largest class and winner of the school's first two state championships. So what have these Admiral Sports of Call been? Listen now and find out. I'm the class president and host, Vic Moore. And we're picking up all kinds of passengers tonight, no exception. Bill Perry from back in the day. Bill, say howdy. Hello, everybody. So, Bill, what uh, what, what are you doing today? Like, what did you do today specifically? Today, I... Um, I I did a lot of stuff online. I was working at uh, Johnson and Johnson and in the gene therapy program, and I spent the morning uh, in the laboratory, and then came back to do a whole bunch of meetings online, like everybody else, um, and trying to get um, trying to get as much done as you can when you're you're working remotely. <laughs> All right, awesome. Now Johnson and Johnson. This is the Johnson and Johnson for those of you listening. Yeah, the makers of all those wonderful products that we uh, use on a daily basis, probably most of us. And also, um, you know, Bill, you're, you're kind of getting it more of a grand uh, molecular scale in your research. Tell us, what are you up to in that respect? I mean, you're really getting down there to the nitty gritty. What we're trying to do really is, is develop treatments for disease. Um, specifically, there's a lot of diseases that uh, you get from your family. You're maybe born with uh, instead of a disease like I thought of as a kid where you only get diseases when you catch something, when you get a virus, when you get a cold. You know, there's things that, that run in families. And so so there's a number of diseases that um, that you may get that, that you know, make you um, disabled from birth, you know, or, or have some kind of syndrome. And there's things that develop over time. So we're trying to find a way to uh, treat those and even cure some of those diseases. And so we're doing a thing um, that's that's only recently become possible. And it's it's um, something I've been, I've been wanting to do, you know, my whole career. Uh, it's a thing called gene therapy, where instead of uh, inhibiting something like, uh, you know, taking a pill that will uh, inhibit cholesterol in your body and maybe uh, save you from getting a heart attack. Uh, there's some cases where the information's missing. You know, the um, the gene that you need to make something that's important for your body is missing. And if you can supply that information to the cells that need it, then you can cure some kinds of blindness. You can prevent diseases from progressing um, neurological diseases, uh, infectious diseases. Um, and there's even um, some of the therapies people are taking now that are, um, are protein-based therapies, antibodies, and so forth, that you may have to take the shot uh, every six months for the rest of your life, and that's, that's not so fun, mm-hmm. especially if, um, if you have to get it somewhere like your eye. <laughs> so, um, so some of the therapies we're looking in the future will be you know, a one-and-done kind of treatment. You'll get a shot or uh, get genes delivered to your cells uh, in the place in your body where you need it, and your body will then be able to make the therapy, make the antibodies, and maybe even um, get better result from having the um, the cells that need it make the antibodies closer to where you need it, especially for like Alzheimer's disease, where they, they have a lot of antibody treatments that, that 
there were a lot of hope for, but uh, when you just inject it into your arm, it doesn't always get into your brain in the amount that you need it. So there may be ways to use this kind of therapy to deliver the antibodies um, exactly where you need it, and that is to have the cells in your in your brain maybe make these antibodies. So it sounds a lot like rather than a, a medicine or a procedure taking over coercively your body and making it do what it wants to do, you're working on this development where, uh, I guess, pharmacology medications work hand-in-hand hand with the existing cells in your body as a team to solve the problem. So it's an inviting, I guess, interaction rather than something to dread, you know, like chemo. You know, so damaging to the body. How in the world can our body say, hey, chemo, let's work together? I, there's no discussion, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think a lot of the, the, um, the old cancer therapies were based on the idea that, that uh, cancer cells are dividing rapidly and, and a lot of the cells in your body are not. Blood cells in your body uh, divide pretty rapidly. But a lot of other cells in your body uh, when you're grown, I mean, they're not growing that much. And the cancer cells were different. So they would try to attack the cells that were rapidly dividing in your body, including the cancer, and and would have these um, drugs that would do that. And and someone, you know, the old chemotherapies, they sort of related that to uh, let's kind of find out what kills you and then just back it off a little bit. Mm-hmm. It was very nonspecific. I mean, what they were looking for were things that were going to kill rapidly dividing cells. And so a lot, that's, you know, why uh, you might lose your hair, you might... Um, Need a blood transfusion after some of these cancer treatments, but but then um, more and more we we've over the years been able to identify things that are different about the cancer cells, um, different enough that you can make it more specific mm-hmm. to these um, to these cancers. And in fact, it turns out that that in cancer, most of, as I say, most cells don't divide very rapidly, but the ones that do that turn into cancer, they They've actually taken off the brakes. They've taken off some of the um, the things that keep them in check, and they become essentially then dependent upon certain proteins and certain you know pathways in the cell to grow, and that makes them even more susceptible to specific uh, treatments like antibodies that can block those growth pathways. More susceptible than any other cells in your body. And that's how they've been able to have such great treatment with some of these antibodies to certain kinds of cancers because the cancer cells are just very, very uh, sensitive to those those particular proteins. So Barney, uh, um, Andy Griffith, Barney used to say to, to Andy, nip it, nip it, nip it. So we need to nip it in the gene. We need to find out during development phase what's missing, get it in there and watch this fetus or this person, this child, this adult fix itself. And, you know, I, I think there's a big trend in stem cell therapy now. We talk about using your own body's material. Do you see a trend that stem cells are kind of uh, coming in there and helping out? Yeah. I mean, I think um, we only know about probably certain kinds of stem cells um, basically in development. Uh, you know, the cells can make every part of your body, every different thing. And then as development proceeds, um, as you're growing inside your mom, you start to have cells that, that now can't make everything, that they're restricted into more and more specialized kinds of cells. And for a long time, uh, people didn't know about the kinds of stem cells that you'll find in different tissues. And so there are groups that are 
are purifying these kind of stem cells from different mm-hmm. kinds of tissue and then um, putting those back into people. And, and in some cases, they may be able to um, help treat your disease or, or repair some tissue. But that's not my, my main uh, expertise is, is stem cell biology. But I, I do see that um, a lot of people are working on that. And, and hopefully that will be um, something that as I say, you can be more specific and it be more tailored to yourself. I think we see more and more therapies where instead of instead of just having something off the shelf that, that they would take some of your cells and they would purify ones that are helpful for you. Do you think that there will ever be a trend or a change in focusing on allopathic prevention versus treatment? So prevent some of these things at the get-go. Uh, you know, there's the Hippocratic Oath um, and, and Hippocrates would say, let thy food be thy medicine. That's total preventative. But then we've got now, it seems to be, we're going to come, you come to us after you've messed yourself up and we're going to fix you. So is the utility in having both still or could you only prevent things you never have to fix? Yeah, I think I think that prevention is a big thing. I think um, one of the things that's fascinated me, but it's not my expertise is, the role of the uh, the bacteria in your gut and in preventing disease and keeping you healthy. Um, I think it was it was interesting that uh, several years ago they discovered that it was not uh, stress necessarily that was causing ulcers, but actually caused by a bacterium, this H. pylori that was found in the stomach, and, and essentially the ulcers can now be cured by antibiotics. But what was interesting was that. That bacteria can be in your body, not causing a disease, not causing an ulcer. A lot of things that will get you sick at some points could actually be in your body right now. There's been a lot of research in this area, even towards um, uh, obesity and, and mental health and all sorts of things. Those those bacteria are actually processing things you eat and and making uh, you know uh, met uh, making your body healthier and preventing disease. So. I think um, I think there are things that that you can do naturally just by eating well, and I have to I have to wonder whether the um, the preservatives and stuff that we invented during the war to try to be able to supply food to people um, that would stay good in the in the package for for years, um, if if some of those things are affecting these bacteria essentially in your body and then changing the ratio of uh, if you can say the good bacteria to the bad bacteria or just changing the ratio of what mm-hmm. proliferates. Um, so now just, just looking at your parents and what runs in your family may not be um, always the best way to know like what would be something specific to you. And, and having that information in the future, I think, will you know, let you avoid certain kinds of um, – drugs or, or, you know, don't go to malaria prone regions if you have certain different kinds of mutations and, and, uh, right. you know, maybe you're more sensitive to certain kinds of things and, and should avoid those. That That's a great uh, prospect to look forward in the future when technology will come to that point. You know, you get these complete readouts that normally would take weeks to process in a laboratory setting. And I'm looking for the day when I can pee in the toilet, and when I'm done, it's green. For, you're good to go. <laughs> but, you know, you mentioned genetics. Absolutely. We need to find out the building blocks from whence we came. We need to know what each one of those 
do from the parental offspring joining together? And then, like you said, what we bring to the table. But let me ask you this question. Let's take it into the future with this. Epigenetic. You take what you have, what your mom and dad gave you, but yet you're going to have a direction with your lifestyle choices so that you then in turn spawn healthier genes going forward and maybe in the process benefit along the way yourself. I mean, epigenetics is essentially, um, you know, another way that we regulate gene expression. So you've got your DNA um, and then in your cells, the reason your cells are different, uh, different kinds of cells is which, um, which of the chapters of the book are you going to read in those cells? Um, you know, those are uh, people know about these RNA therapies that we're using for vaccine. Well, the RNA is actually the the um, the things that are the genes that are expressed make RNA in those cells, and um, and then those those are converted into proteins. But the um, epigenetics is is a way where you actually you know chemically modify the DNA by certain proteins um, to keep genes on or keep genes off. And so, as we were talking previously about how certain cells lose the ability to make certain other kinds of things. I mean, maybe if you have a blood cell, it can make different kinds of blood cells at some point, but couldn't necessarily go back and, and make a skin cell or a liver cell. Um, so the epigenetics is the, the kind of thing that, that your body uses to sort of tell which of those genes um, you should choose turn on and which you should turn off. And those can be different in different cells, even within, you know, the same organ, your liver cells, different ones in different regions could actually have more or less expression of those same genes, even though they're all liver cells. And, and that's, you know, through the communication of the cells next to them and hormones and other things in your body to, to fine tune the expression. And so, um, so I think that there's certain kinds of things that that we're exposed to um, certain kinds of chemicals um, could be from smoking, could be from the environment, could be from your food um, that, that can, um, you know, modify your DNA or, or can actually affect which genes are expressed, which ones aren't. And um, there's other kinds of things that affect, you know, why certain cells in your, in your organ will um, express things to different amounts. Um, basically you take care of your, your body, and then, you know, um, it will have an effect on your kids. Right. Absolutely. Uh, that's a good segue topic, have an effect on your kids. So I want to think about this, Bill Perry, um, going back in time now to when we could have started thinking about having a family or kids. Let's get in the time machine. Uh, gee, Mr. Peabody. <laughs> Fascinating discussion. But I know if I'm tuning in, I'm going to like, okay, okay, okay. When are we going to talk about Bill's past? Okay. You know. So let's do that. Let, I mean, this is great. I love this stuff. And maybe we need to have another podcast and just talk about present day, what you're into and the genetics of it all. But let's go back for the sake of time now. And the year is 1982, Bill. If you remember correctly, it was June the 2nd. Stokely Athletic Center, we threw our hats up. We gave the marbles out and the whole staff was losing them. Let me tell you. Um, <laughs> and then we graduated up and all. What did you then say to yourself? What am I going to do with my life? You know, I decided, you know, way back when I was a teenager that I, I wanted, if I could, to study genetics. And the reason was uh, when I was 13, uh, I met a, a distant relative as we traveled to Florida um, that 
that in my family actually was dying of a genetic disease. Um, mm. There's a disease, blood disease called uh, beta thalassemia. And it's in the hemoglobin that carries your oxygen in your blood. And um, my friend, uh, my cousin Tommy, uh, he was 18 and I was like 13. And his, his older uh, brother and sister had already died of the same disease. And mm -hmm. here he was soon to die in a few more years. It had a big impact on me yeah, um, I can see know, to, to realize that, that, you know, as I say, this was the first time that I realized that you could actually have a disease run in your family. It hit me that, that like if you could um, discover what the causes of a bunch of different diseases were that run in families uh, at the DNA level, at the actual chromosomes, uh, and, and understand what was wrong, the basic thing that was wrong, then maybe you could come up with, with uh, a cure disease or at least an effective treatment. And that's, you know, a few years later, that's when they were talking about gene therapy. That is... Uh, you have a mistake in one of your genes, and that maybe cause all your problems. So, if you could deliver that that gene back into the cells that need it, especially like your blood cells, for example, then that would cure the disease. I, um, you know, went to the University of Tennessee and uh, you know was going to be a biology major, but later on was able to in the, the program of liberal arts was able to get into a special program where you could more fine tune your major with uh, a faculty member and. So I, I sort of crafted a, uh, a program around, um, around laboratory science and, and genetics. Got to work in a laboratory when I was um, starting when I was a sophomore for a few years and, and uh, was able to do laboratory research um, to um, get some publications. And, and I think ultimately that allowed me to get into graduate school uh, mm -hmm. to uh, to further you, my I have, career. I have, to, I have to interrupt. I have to ask you, Bill. Did you ever blow anything up with an unattended Bunsen burner? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, one of the things we had to do in the laboratory, uh, which was very interesting, was um, we had to um, melt this this stuff uh, that's purified from seaweed called agar rose. People have seen these kind of laboratory plates called agar plates. It's just like a jello, but it's made out of. Um, it's it's more um, solid than cello, but it, but still you melt it kind of in the same way. And we would um, you know put this in the, the right kind of solution and melt the stuff till till it was completely melted and clear. And then quite a um, quite a dangerous procedure. And, and then you have to cool the uh, the agarose sufficiently because you pour it between the glass and it's too hot, it's going to break the glass. And then you've got all this stuff you know pouring out all over the lab bench and. And so, so I, I, after a while, I got pretty good at it. But um, it was, it, it wasn't nearly as um, as easy as if you had a microwave. I think uh, the laboratory didn't have one, but eventually we found one down the hall that we could <laughs> could borrow, and it was it was much easier to achieve success. So an, an, another use for the microwave, other than popcorn. Hey, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, great. That's awesome. So here we are at UT. You're crafting your own uh, undergrad program to your liking. So now we're looking at 82 to what about 86? Right. That program's over. And then you're obviously thinking, let's do this again, a little more advanced. <laughs> so you chose to go to New York. Yeah. So um, so basically, um, I, um, I, I was still interested in this genetics thing, and, and there really wasn't much in the University of Tennessee uh, focusing on genetics. Um, so, 
so I, you know, went to the library. I was looking at all the, the little, you know, uh, college catalogs and stuff that you could get um, and uh, trying to find schools that were focused on genetics. And, and I uh, applied to a whole bunch of graduate programs. Uh, if you, if you um, went right from your bachelor's and got into a Ph.D. program, then there were a lot of programs that would actually pay all of your tuition and wow. give you a small amount of money to live on. And since, um, since I didn't have uh, uh, a bunch of money for future education, I had to find a way to uh, afford this. And so this was one good way. So I applied to like maybe 13 different schools and, and uh, got, got a few, um, got a few interviews. Um, I tell people that I enjoyed um, uh, getting invited to go to university of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And I got to meet uh, Francis Collins, who was, in the department at the time, he later became, you know, the, the uh, head of NIH, you know, headed up the Human Genome Project and all these things. But he, he was uh, studying ways to actually identify the gene for a lung disease called cystic fibrosis. I think, I, you know, I went on uh, different fundraising uh, walks and those kind of things when I was a kid to raise money for that research. But he, his lab was, was critical at, at actually finding the actual gene for this disease, and uh, I got to meet him and, and stuff. But ultimately, um, you know, I got offers from a few schools and a lot of a lot of rejection letters. That thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> and uh, one of the places I went was it was going to be the, the Department of Human Genetics and Development in uh, Columbia University in New York. And by the time that I um, by the time that I went there, the two human geneticists had left. So it was just the genetics and development department and development meaning kind of embryonic development. And uh, uh, there was human, human development, but mostly uh, other animal systems. Uh, you know, they had everything from, from yeast to um, trypanosomes, which is a kind of parasite that, that uh, you know, sort of like malaria. Uh, they had, you know, mouse, which is what I worked on and, and um, various other various other uh, programs. And, and so it was great. And we got to, um, to learn about the uh, many different things, you know, just from being in the departments, taking classes from the faculty and get a really a broad based education in, in, um, in development. And so less on genetics, some on genetics, but mostly how we develop and, and studying those, those genes that play a role in that. Your selection to go there in New York, uh, then launched you into a whole new uh, form of research. In, anytime you do, you know, a master's level program, you're getting even more and more specific to what you really want to do. But you know, back in the eighty, early eighties, when you first started this, you were probably thinking to yourself, "Will we ever be able to map the genome?" And then here it comes. You know, I think it was in the two thousands um, before they actually had the. Uh, the first copy of the uh, the human genetic code, and actually, um, you know, as people will tell you, um, we haven't yet totally sequenced the whole genome because there's parts of it that you just you just can't get through with with current technology and and a lot of things that are repetitive. So just the way that we're doing it, you can't um, you can't you know they usually fragment the uh, chromosomes into pieces and then you know, the edges of them align. So then you can eventually make, you know, the whole sequence, but there's certain reasons that are just um, so repetitive that you can't actually sequence from one side to the other because they look so similar. So, well, that's nice to me. I thought, I thought that the project had been completed, but it looks like 
maybe just the majority. Well, it, well, it is, but you know, it's interesting because um, you know we had the first genome, the first or, or several different you know people that they had sequenced, and now what they find is is that just like in other species, there's changes. There's a lot of the genes are very much the same, but in some cases, you know, your chromosome, like a certain fragment of it might be flipped around or it might be, there might be more copies of certain, certain genes than others in certain people. So, um, so I, I think, um, and then there's this whole thing about if you do, uh, some of these genetic genealogy, like 23andMe and Ancestry, um, they had this whole thing talking about, um, you know, other species DNA, uh, you know, in our, in our genome, there's a lot of differences between different people. And so trying to pinpoint which of the, you know, billions of bases that you have, uh, that may be different, um, is a big effect of, you know, is actually the cause of the mutation that causes your disease and which one is just normal variation, uh, has been hard. And so what, people will do now that they have like a thousand of these genomes done um, that, that you can look at. You can actually look at a certain gene or a certain region of a chromosome and you can compare those among a bunch of different people. And so you, you can usually find, oh, okay, so this, this version that you have is very similar to a whole bunch of other healthy people that, that also have this version. Yeah. Yeah. Research goes on and science goes on and, that's one thing about science is it's never too proud to bow down and say, hey, your discovery's got more. You're, you're over the target higher. Or we're going to get out of the way and you take it from here, whatever group that happens to be. Uh, and we progress on forward. And I think of some wild progression that we might be able to get into. When I saw that movie with, I think it was Matt Damon called Elysium where there was a big spacecraft thing up in the sky it was for people that had a lot of money and elites could live there and the earth was desolate. And they had this machine up there that they were trying to get this young girl to who was dying. And it was like a, a medication bed or a med bed, some Star Trekian device. And this is what I like about science that maybe one day we can have one of these, you know, you lay down in it, it goes over you a few times, it analyzes and all of a sudden, you start to grow things that are missing. <laughs> Did you see that movie? Are you familiar with the MedVed technology? Yeah, I've, I've seen I've seen that uh, you know illustrated in several things. I how, think. Um, how far away I are think, we from that? I think we're way far away from that. I mm -hmm. think it's like um, there's a lot of things that that even people are are saying that they're uh, doing a research that I I think. Um, you know, our money might be better spent doing other things. I think when I heard George Church was going to try to, you know, uh, mutate an elephant genome to bring it back to a woolly mammoth, I thought that that's, you know, that's just, you know, maybe a graduate student's like, um, you know, thesis project just to see if you can do it. <laughs> um, it's extremely difficult to be able to, I mean, you can, you can mutate, you know, cells in a Petri dish, but when, when you're talking about trying to make changes to a living organism, to something that can actually give birth to something, um, it's so very, very hard to do any kind of change and still have something that's capable of making an organism. I mean, they, they have a knockout technology in mouse that, 
that was pioneered, you know, many years ago. And mm-hmm. basically, um, you can you can take you know cells from a mouse that you can grow that that are pluripotent. That is, they can they can give rise to all parts of your embryo, and you can delicately maybe make a genetic change, you know, in the laboratory uh, to one gene, and then. The idea would be you can take those and put those back into an embryo, just like with in vitro fertilization that they do for infertile couples. You can do that under a microscope, put some of those cells into the embryo, and um, because of the way development works, um, those cells can sometimes, you know, then contribute to all the cells, you know, in or, or you know some some amount of cells in a grown embryo, if you put those back into a pregnant uh, mouse and then three weeks later you get a new mouse. Um, uh, but there's a lot of times when you make this one little bitty change on these cells and these cells will not work at all. They will not contribute at all to the embryo. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that you can make thousands and thousands of changes to these cells and have them at all be functional in development is is you know beyond our current technology now, and I really don't know why for why you know why you'd want to spend your time and money trying to do that. Mm. It, it seems like it's maybe more of a case of um, you know uh, can we do it rather than you know, what's the purpose of doing it, you know? Right. I don't know that what we're going to be able to actually uh, learn from, from those kind of things. But um, And so the med bed technology, I mean, I think that there's probably a lot of things that, that you know, can be diagnosed. I think it's more likely that, that you know, you'll have an ability to um, give a little bit of blood and have some kind of in-office uh, sequencing to, to, to diagnose certain kinds of things um, in the future um, than it would be that you could have some kind of, you know, scanning device be able to pick up all of that information from, like, you know, up right above your body or something. But um, yeah. it's good. It's good science fiction. Yeah, I like <laughs> I like the science fiction aspect. That's true. <laughs> oh, yeah. And speaking of science fiction, I've got to ask you something. You spent time there a lot of time at Columbia. Um, also, a famous physicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I believe, went there during part of his education. Did you ever cross paths with him? I did not. Because <laughs> okay. he was born in 58, and we were born like 64-ish, so you might, he might have gone on through. Uh, of course, I've a- definitely heard a lot of podcasts in, in the years and all the TV shows and stuff yeah. uh, since then. Yeah. Um, the... Yeah. Um, you know, the medical school campus where we were um, was actually up like 168th Street. It's actually in uh, Spanish Harlem. Um, it's it's a lot prettier now than it was when I went there. Uh, just, you know, very close to the the uh, the medical school campus was the theater where Malcolm X was shot. And I, after I left, um, Spike Lee went up to make a movie about Malcolm X, and I heard that he went – sort of decorated the outside of this uh, this theater and all this stuff and made it look great, and they shot their film, and then as soon as they left, they just took all the stuff away and <laughs> it went back to kind of disrepair again. Uh, but um, uh, And I think they eventually decided to actually make um, that that site a place for, um, 
for research, oh. and uh, they have a you know a, I hear uh, they have a memorial to uh, to the location of that that place. But it was you know I mean I guess there was a lot of concern about you know tearing down that place when uh, when and to make a new place when uh, that was the proposal. But you know there wasn't anybody else that that came forward that wanted to uh, you know, restore or use that place for anything else. So, um, so you, I, I, I wasn't there, but anyway, I guess that's, um, that, that, that's a, you know, so what I was going to say is that the, um, you know, the, the main campus that you see for, um, for Columbia is down at 116th street. And that, that's a, a beautiful place. It turned out that, um, that right before I went to grad school, they had just been filming the Ghostbuster movie <laughs> on campus, like the maybe six months before or something, um, down you know on the main campus, and that's that's the place that most people see, and uh, the more fun place to um, to to see you know to feel like you're really at a Ivy League place uh, up at the medical school campus. It was like you know research buildings and a hospital and and uh, a homeless shelter and some other stuff that, that uh, didn't make it seem like you were really on a, a high school, you know, Ivy League campus. When you, when you say Ghostbusters, like that, that was the first one with like Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. Original one. Okay, yeah. yeah. One of my, my roommate uh, later on told me he, he would go down there and he'd say, Oh, you know, you could go down there and they'd be hanging out and you could, <laughs> you could talk to them and stuff while they were, they were like shooting the film or waiting in between scenes and oh, stuff. So, cool. Shoot the fat with Dan Aykroyd, you know. <laughs> and he could have been a scientist, you know. He seemed scientific, you know, in his yeah. persona. <laughs> um, anyway, okay, so let's get back on your story. So now we are mastering ourselves here um, in Columbia. you got that <laughs> program going on, and now you're going to get that done with, and you're headed to the next level, the Ph.D. level. So how long was the master's program, and did it meld into the Ph.D. program? Basically, the way it works is you had, you know, maybe like a five-year-plus program for your PhD and started right from the bachelor. So, like, after you did your first year of classes and if you passed your exams and stuff, then you would get, like, one master's, right? And then they had do a small amount of research, you know, and, and propose a research project and, and have, an, like, what they call a qualifying exam where you actually discuss the research you're planning to do for your PhD and go in front of a committee and defend it and all this stuff. And and if you pass that part, then they would give you another master's. So then what you do is you'd go and actually do your, your dissertation research. And then, you know, after some amount of time, three or four or five years, um, maybe later, then you would um, – you would have your project and you would then write up your uh, dissertation and, mm -hmm. and defend that in front of a committee. What was your dissertation? What was your thesis? So, um, so what was interesting was, so the, the lab that I ended up uh, going into um, was I, there was, as I say, there weren't any human geneticists around anymore. So I went, did the next best thing. I, I went to mouse and um, the, the lab that I went into was, was doing something very interesting. So, there had been a technique that had been developed, and then you know my boss Frank, um, he and his wife both decided as postdocs to try to uh, get this to work. And and what it was was actually to create mouse models of human disease, transgenic mice. And because you did it at the one cell stage, then everything you know from the mouse develops from that one that one cell. And so that means that 
uh, the sperm and the eggs of the, the male and the female mice would also derive from that, which would mean that you could then also, um, you know, mate these mice to other mice and, and that the progeny could inherit this stable chain that you could then use that maybe to cure some of these diseases and create a disease um, model like sickle cell anemia whereby uh, the cells get deformed and they don't they don't uh, hold oxygen the same way and they also create all sorts of damage. One of the things that was interesting was that because the DNA they inject goes in at random places in the chromosome, it can go right into the middle of another gene and mess it up. And so in some fraction of the mice they made, if you actually uh, made them so that you have, you know, um, two copies of some of these chromosomes where the DNA went in, you would start to see, you know, the mice weren't healthy. And so, so I studied such a line like this, and the, the disease actually uh, caused embryos in the middle of, of uh, forming to actually, like, not develop in the right way and the, to be aborted. So you found that you just didn't get any homozygous mutant, you know, animals with this, um, with this insertion there. And so we were able to go back and actually um, study uh, what gene had been disrupted, what was going on, and then what thing during embryonic development did it mess up. And it, and, um, and so it turned out to be uh, a very important gene needed in, in uh, development. And actually, um, um, it was a new mutation of something that, that someone had identified way back um, you know, like in 1930 or something, they identified the first mutation in this gene. And, and there was other groups trying to clone this, but because um, we got there first, we collaborated with them and actually identified, you know, this, mm. this gene that, that had been a mystery, um, you know, for since the 1930s. Wow. <laughs> you know, it, it, was, it was very interesting. And the one gene could, could cause such a, such a phenotype and, um, you know, cause you not to develop in the right way. It's like a high-functioning dissertation, you know. It, your your work that you work so hard to get out with it trails you along, and you're just keep, you know, developing on top of that. When you when did you get complete your PhD program? What year was that? PhD was completed in '92, and then I went on for uh, for postdoctoral work that that uh, went on until '96. Okay, so you were in there a good bit of time, leading up to the big uh, now reveal of the genome project. So 96, you're through research and you're really working hard. Talk a little bit about what happened more on a personal level, like any kind of a family involvement going on or, or major discoveries or setbacks. So I, I, I went from New York to work down in uh, uh, the National Cancer Institute in uh, Frederick, Maryland, um, in a uh, uh, development lab. And, and they were also, uh, Nancy Jenkins and Neil Copeland were both uh, worldwide genetics experts in, in genetics of the mouse. And so that was a fun time. Um, you know, I was studying one of the first mouse obesity genes that was cloned. A lot of people didn't know anything about what causes obesity from a genetic standpoint. And here, right after I, I got there, um, another lab had cloned uh, the first mouse obesity gene. And so I worked on that. And then, and, you know, that tied into a bunch of other obesity research to come out about uh, the way that 
that um, your body regulates, like you know, when you're hungry and, and uh, uh, the ghrelin. And, yeah, ghrelin. But uh, there's there's this um, this other uh, pathway called the pro-opio-melanocortin pathway. Pro-opio-melanocortin pathway. And these these particular receptor family, there's a receptor on the melanocytes that make the color in your skin and in your hair if you're a mouse. Um, the uh, There's a similar receptor in your brain that's restricted and, and usually it has its own signal to turn in on uh, to tell you when to eat, when not to eat. What did you do with that research? I mean, did, were, were there medications developed from that or for what? There, there was um, a lot of companies that were, um, that were working on trying to develop um, medicines to uh, interact with those receptors uh, in the human brain to try to affect the, um, the thing. I think some cases you can – I mean, these things normally are affected by proteins – I don't think anybody actually came up with a drug that that worked exactly the way that they hoped it would. But there's, you know, a lot of other obesity pathways that that interact. So what we're able to do then is is use a molecular technique using um, DNA at the place where we were, where the coat color gene was, and to jump down to the other place, the other end of this inversion, to this other gene, identify gene there, and that gene I identified. Um, turned out to be also very important in immune immune regulation. And it turns out that very similarly, there's a there's actually a, the human gene actually does correlate with you know with a human disease. And so mm-hmm. um, it's once again where where you know being able to use this mouse genetics and identify these things and actually a phenotype um, that, that correlates also with the human disease, I think was um, very interesting. And so that, you know, that set me up to uh, to go on to uh, to study uh, human diseases, um, you know, like myriad genetics. When I went on after my postdoc to uh, my first real job at a, at a company that was set up to actually use genetics to identify human disease genes, and hopefully then leading to um, effective treatments for those. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the question on everybody's mind right now, listening, might have something to do with the COVID nineteen variants. What's going on in India? And this is being recorded mid-May of 2021 for those keeping timestamp tra- uh, track. Um, if we've got everything, it seems like we're zipping it up here in the United States with the vaccines and they're starting to come off with the mask rules. How in the world is India down there just like they're all exploding all over again? Are they just not hurting their immunity properly or, or what's going on? I think it's just enough that people didn't get, you know, didn't get the health care, didn't get the, the resources they need in order to uh, either get vaccinated or to, to be able to, to stay away from uh, the people that, that have it. Um, I think, you know, there's a real difference between, you know, the haves and the have-nots in certain places. And I think that, as we've seen here, there's people that, that have very, very little symptom and can pass it to other people that, that have a big effect. And so I think just... You know, it's a very. Uh, we've talked to people that we work with in India, um, and it's very scary. I mean, even with all the the precautions you can have to, you know, screen everybody every day before they come into work, and and you know, isolate and have masks and stuff. I mean, that's that's of the people that have the resources, and there's a lot of people that that are there that are living very close quarters and maybe don't have access to healthcare and those kind of things. But I think. Um, um, 
you know, the, this fact of the variants showing up, I think there's pretty good evidence that suggests that the variants are happening because as the uh, viruses replicate in people that get it, there's mutations that happen just during the replication. The, the virus has its own enzymes for making more copies of its DNA and, and reproducing. And it's not very uh, good at, at preventing errors. Our, our cells have very good ways of being able to replicate our DNA and, and avoid errors in most cases. But, but the virus, I mean, it's actually a benefit for them because they can just generate lots of different variants. And if, if one, um, one variant gives them a selective advantage, that is like if, if you can escape an immune reaction or a drug or some other kind of, of uh, place, then that variant will appear. And I think I heard a podcast about where people studying people in hospitals that actually had the disease and they would start to see variants happening uh, through, through this next-gen sequencing. And uh, those variants that popped up just in one person were ones that, that later you just found like out in the society, out in the population also were independently popping up in, in people and were the ones that were spreading. So I think it's, it's just a, um, it's just a, you know, a survival strategy for the virus. And so the best thing we can all do is to get vaccinated to, to like actually stop the ability of this virus to keep replicating and keep evolving and keep making new variants that can get passed on to other people. And some people say that there's a, a danger in the vaccine itself, that it may cause some really dangerous symptomology alone and may even lead to death in certain cases. Of course, the conspiracy buffs would probably say, oh, yeah, there's more deaths than they're letting you know about. What do you what do you think about that? I think that it's very important for everybody to get vaccinated. I think that you know, the U.S. Uh, Food and Drug Administration is very, very stringent with respect to anything getting approved. That's why there were gene therapies early approved in Europe that never were approved in the U.S. I mean, we just really require lots of, of evidence for, you know, for, for effectiveness and safety. You know, I've talked to a number of people that have various different vaccines that do have side effects from this. But if you get any kind of virus infection, any kind of thing... Um, any kind of immune reaction to these things, um, you know, that's to be expected. That's, you know, that that's not pleasant, but just imagine, you know, what your reaction would be if you got a full strength of a full virus. You know, the protection that you can get from a vaccine to keep your loved ones safe and people that don't have a very good immune response, immune reaction, um, I think I would highly recommend everybody to get this. And I think that there are side effects that people are looking at. I think that the side effects that you can get from the vaccine are a fraction of what you would get if you actually got the virus. I heard a physician say that, that everybody that gets this coronavirus has, um, you know, if they do an x-ray of your lungs, the damage looks like somebody that's been smoking for 20 years. I mean, even if you feel like you don't have much effect from this, there's evidence that there's lingering effects, even in children that, you know, didn't seem to have much symptoms, uh, you know, neurological symptoms, um, you know, all sorts of other kinds of things because the virus is staying in your body to some degree and doing things we don't even know. And I, I think that it would be very, um, I would feel very bad if, if 
you know, I let one of my kids get infected from the virus. And then later on, only later do we find out that they had some kind of damage that they're now going to be, you know, lifelong symptoms or, or effects from this one thing that was present preventable at this, this point in time. So talk about your family, your children. Do you have children? I do. So mm-hmm. I, I was um, married almost 20 years ago. It's 20 years this year. Um, to um, my wife Natasha, I have three boys. Um, one that's uh, one that's 18 and 16 and 13. They're all about to have birthdays, so I had to think. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, my oldest son William is about to graduate high school. And, now, is, uh, is is he the fourth? The fourth? He is. Yes, I was William the third, and he's <laughs> William the fourth. So well, I, I used to kid my girlfriends that I would ha- we maybe have triplets and we could name them the fourth, fifth, and sixth, but. <laughs> That it usually didn't get uh, the right kind of response. <laughs> well, you, do you remember James Bornhoff? Um, I, I haven't interviewed him yet. I hope if he's listening, J, J, Jimmy, James, contact me. I think he was the fifth. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, already at that point. And I'd love to talk to him and see if he's had any boys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, we were hoping for at least one girl, but mm-hmm. um, we didn't get one. So, so um, you know. We're very proud of our boys, and uh, there's there's synergism and uh, definitely uh, different, you know, way differences in their personality. So uh, we've had a, a rich and uh, and uh, fun time to uh, have them all together. <laughs> what well, uh, you talk a little bit more about about your boys there? What uh, what are they into? Are they going to be following in dad's footsteps? Or are they radically different? It's unknown. I, I think my oldest son's not at all interested in science, um, and uh, um, my other two boys are interested in lots of things, uh, not necessarily science. Um, you know, I mean, I would support that if they're interested. I, I think that um, there's so many different things in um, in the world to be interested in and, and to have um, to have a chance to do. And I think um, more and more uh, people don't always stay in the, the same career, the same job. I've had so many different jobs at different companies over the years um, just you know, needs of the company change or your interests change. Um, and, um, and I, I think, uh, the one good thing is that my, my science and my job has made me very specialized and it means that I have to actually move around a lot of times when, um, when I have to find another job. So, I mean, I, to some degree envy the people that can just, uh, you know, uh, get a home, stay in one place, can build up equity, can pay everything off, can be, you know, secure in that. Um, whereas, you know, we've had to move and go to different places and, and even up north, uh, more and more expensive places, it seems. So, so, uh, but, you know, we've had, I think, I think uh, the boys have enjoyed living like three different places now. Uh, and they, they can compare and they can see that, well, you know, I'm not so, I'm not so worried about like living maybe a different place, um, you know, than where I grew up uh, because they live three different places, three, you know, three different states and, and, uh, have more of an ability to, to go and, and do what they want, where they want to do it. Well, that's good. That's good. They, they certainly will have your support. I, I can tell that you are very fond of them and, um, it might be a good thing that they choose a different career. That way you can expand the whole family's horizons on all kinds of different subjects. Right. I, I mean, I think, um, I think that you need to find something that you're, you're passionate about something that you um, that that gives you joy to, to get up and do every morning, and mm-hmm. uh, and you know 
I think I had a lot of friends from uh, school that would pick what they want to do in college or what they want to major in based on what they thought was going to make them a lot of money. But a lot of those guys didn't end up doing something that they really liked. Um, And maybe they went on to do something that was way different from their college. And I think um, it's, um, you know, college education right now is very, very expensive. I I could essentially uh, work 20 hours a week going to college at Tennessee and be able to afford an apartment and be able to pay for my tuition. And now mm-hmm. you've got all these schools that are, you know, 70,000 a year. And it's just like very hard to imagine how that is. And so for my kids, we really encourage them to have stake in the game to really like, it shouldn't be, in my opinion, shouldn't be something that you do to just put off, thinking about what you want to do for your career for four more years. Right. So, um, so they have to work hard to, uh, to get scholarships and to find, you know, to find something that's, that's going to fit with, um, what they want to do and and to go to college when, when it, it really fulfills a need and, and, and gives them what they need to to survive. But I'm, I'm not uh, proposing just that we're going to just pay everything and you can just go have fun for four years and, (laughs) and, uh, and and it's less less able to do that, uh, you know, these days with the, the uh, cost of education than mm-hmm. maybe when we were kids. Yeah, it's, I, I like the point you brought out when you like and love your job, your career. You never work another day in your life. It's just something you naturally like to do. I get a paycheck for this. Oh, okay, I'll take that too. You know. <laughs> Well, it's you know I think that's that's the goal, and I think you shouldn't be afraid to um, change your focus to to change what you can do, what you like to do. You know, it's only been recently that I've been able to focus on gene therapy. I mean, you know, we, I I went to um, to a, a pharmaceutical company where they were studying small molecule drugs for various different kinds of diseases. Right, a little bit. We were we were hoping we can use genetics and and those kind of things to identify what are the best ways to treat certain diseases and what are the causes of those diseases um, at, you know, chromosome level so you can make things more targeted. But it wasn't genetics necessarily. Went on to to a company that was uh, more focused on developing DNAs to treat different kinds of diseases, do different kinds of things, and really, um, you know, understand how to, to engineer the, the gene, the payload, you know, that you want to make for therapies and make that efficient. And now, you know, for six or seven years now, I've been at J&J where we've been working on uh, developing the gene therapies. And um, one of the things that's been a challenge that I've been taking on has been, you know, the manufacturing of the therapy so that um, so that it'll be efficient and it'll be cost efficient. Um, right now, gene therapy is limited to diseases where there's only a few number, few of people and uh, places where um, you only need a small amount of the therapy, like the eye, where you know it's a small, small organ. Eventually, we want to get to the point where we can treat common diseases and things that will affect lots of people. Um, there's uh, one project in our in our uh, company where uh, they've developed um, antibodies that totally inactivate and block infection of all kinds of of influenza for the last 50 years, mm-hmm. and so. One of the therapies we're trying to develop um, would be a, a nasal spray you could you could put. It would protect you maybe for a, a season because the cells in your nose and, and lungs would 
would have antibodies against this influenza and it would protect you from getting infected in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it would generally go away because, you know, the, 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 the cells lining your lungs and your nose are one of those cells that, that are replaced over time. And so maybe the next season you would get the thing, but, but because it's universal anti-flu treatment, then potentially that work. Now, of course, there's a lot between, you know, coming up with an idea and actually getting it in people and actually see if it's safe and effective and all those kind of things. But one of the points was that in order to make a therapy like this, you have to come up with a way to be able to manufacture the therapy and deliver it uh, in a way that's that's efficient and also in a way that is um, cheap so that, you know, uh, as opposed to a, a flu vaccine, you know, you would have this thing that potentially can can protect people like uh, older people whose immune system is not very good and that, that might not be able to really benefit from a flu vaccine. But And, and that's where influenza is really killing a lot of people every year. So, so uh, like the coronavirus, I mean, if you could actually prevent the infection in the first place, then that would be great. And hopefully that kind of a local therapy would be something that's not going to give you all the kind of effects of a, of a typical vaccine. If we're successful, then in the next 10 years, you start to see therapies for things that that we know what the defect is and we have a, a ability to, to maybe uh, predict that if you just replace this one protein mm-hmm. in your in your in your ears or in your eye, that you can have a dramatic effect on, on you know, the quality of life and, and in some cases, um, you know, treating some of these, these terrible diseases that are very common in our population. Okay, cool. Awesome. So let's go back in time a little bit more with the roundup. I've got like a fast 10 or so questions, like a, I guess one of those psychological tests with a word association maybe. Um, <laughs> so, for example, I'll say your favorite food choice back in 82 era. What, what did you like to eat? No, I I liked um, I liked uh, prime rib. I guess if we went out to a restaurant, um, mm-hmm. I would get that as like a steak choice. Or um, or I I love to have um, shish kebab that my uh, my parents would make on the grill at home. Oh yeah, yeah. If you went to a restaurant, let's segue to that. What was your favorite restaurant to go to? Um, I think. By the time that I was a senior, um, like uh, one of the favorite places we like to go to is this Regis restaurant up, oh, yeah, uptown. Yeah. That was good. I remember their strawberry spinach salad. Um, <laughs> okay, music or if you listened and or played an instrument, anything musical from the 80s? So I, I took up guitar um, in high school, and uh, one of the, the guys that was um, – Hitting it big about that time was this guy named Dan Fogelberg. Oh yeah, he yeah. he um he had like this this song called Leader of the Band and and it was it was a little bit challenging to try to figure out how did he actually play that but but um I mean that's that's what that's what it was fun it was trying to figure out how do you actually uh, how do you actually play the way that he played and and uh, but um um but you know I I. I more and more um, now, I still enjoy a lot of the uh, 
the kind of what used to be pop, uh, the songs with good lyrics, uh, such as, you know, the Eagles, the, uh, Billy Joel, um, you know, Elton John, um, all those kind of guys that, uh, and I guess, um, you know, they had that, that pop band for a while called sticks, you know, oh, they had yeah. all those kind of interesting <laughs> songs and stuff. So all of those things. And then, you know, as the music sort of changed to different kinds of styles, I still tended to, uh, gravitate towards people that have uh, have good lyrics i remember the stick song don't sit on the plexiglass toilet <laughs> <laughs> all right cool uh let's talk about this sports or activities uh, that you might get involved with well what did you like back then and it could even be something you watched on tv on the weekend what's your favorite sports team i think i think that you know with my parents both going to the university of tennessee um and not not really having much access to uh, professional sports when I was living in Knoxville. Um, you know, I think the closest we came was uh, to watching the uh, UT volunteers uh, play football. And then, of course, when I went to, to college in the fall, um, we, uh, you know, got to, to go to uh, the big, you know, the big stadium, watch the things live. And actually, you know, uh, you talked previously about um, our, uh, our, our class, our graduating class. Well, you know, interesting enough, the, the entering class and freshman was the first time that, that, um, you know, we get, we beat, um, Alabama during my freshman year and, uh, bear Bryant there on the sidelines and uh, they were tearing down the goalpost a lot that, that fall. But that was, um, that was definitely, you know, I, I don't know how many of the freshmen that were in our class were, were part of, uh, you know, the lineup there, but, uh, it seemed like, you know, that, that all of a sudden, um, you know, we continued with all the, uh, the great things of our, uh, our generation of our, our graduate class and had, you know, even made the, the college sports, uh, more exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Big ball fan. Uh, that's great. Go to those games. All right. Listen, another question for you, a uh, TV show or movie that you would follow or, like to go watch i know you got i know you like star wars we talked earlier before we interviewed you're a big star wars fan like as i am yeah of course um so um so in addition to star wars i think tv show i would have to say uh saturday night live uh, mm -hmm. i followed that you know ever since i i found that uh on tv you know and i think um you know all those guys chevy chase and john belushi and dan Aykroyd, eddie murphy and all those guys. Um, Movie-wise, I would say um, I'd say uh, one thing that came out about that time was probably one of the scariest movies I'd seen was uh, Steven Spielberg's Poltergeist. Oh. Uh, and then about the same time, um, maybe a year before, uh, they had Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, that was a great one. Uh, Comedy-wise, I think. Uh, you know, a few years maybe before they had Animal House. You know, which had a lot of those same guys uh, in it. And um, yeah, I remember Animal House. Um, a great way to eject mashed potatoes out of your mouth. Exactly. John Belushi <laughs> trained as well. <laughs> okay, let's see. We're gonna uh, a couple more here, real quickly. Uh, your favorite teacher, and let's go ahead and throw in there maybe favorite subject as well. I'm thinking they might be one and the same. Well, not necessarily. I, I, you know, I guess um, I never was really like extra close to any of the teachers. But I have to say that um, 
probably the most valuable was the, uh, you know, was like the senior English courses that I took uh, from Miss Nesbitt. Um, she, um, you know, they actually, you know, took like what would have been a, a freshman level English composition course and even had the same books. And, you know, we'd have to write these essays. And it was like a big shock, like a lot of the other students that all of a sudden you're getting a D on a paper and it's like, oh my God, that they would have all these like, you know, numbers at the side, you go to the book and you look up what mistake you'd made. And, and thank God for that because, you know, you go into freshman composition uh, in college and I was, you know, much better prepared. Um, the, um, you know, favorite subject, uh, interestingly enough, was uh, computer science. So, hmm. um you know, they had bought some of uh, these uh, Radio Shack TRS-80s. They had this old, um, you know, Wang computer. And uh, one of my friends from uh, Boy Scouts uh, had told me about, um, you know, that they had these things. And then they had um, these courses. And also they had a computer explorer post at a business. So we started going to those things. And I started teaching myself how to program in these computers, I realized that if I went after school that for a while they would have these things kind of opened up. And, and so I just, you know, tried to teach myself that kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, in the end it was, you know, uh, I guess it was one of the wave of people that had, you know, didn't have one of the computers at home, but at least it like taught themselves that kind of, um, that kind of thing. So that's why I guess you saw a lot of guys, going to the computer science courses or whatever in college and, um, and um, few of the women, I guess, because we had drawn, you know, we were drawn to that. So. And on that note, what would be your motto? What was your motto back then? And has it changed any now? You know, send us off with your, your word phrase of wisdom for life, Bill. You know, as opposed to many of the others that I, I hung out with, um, I, I was, you know, more like a B student, right? It wasn't for a lack of trying, but I just didn't have, um, I didn't have like the photographic memory. It, it took lots of studying, lots of figuring out. So I would say my motto was, you know, hard work and persistence beats natural intelligence or a photographic memory. I just mm -hmm. spend lots of time working harder, reading more, uh, you know, keep working at something um, and you can learn it, you can do it, but um, and, and don't feel like that you need to be born with an aptitude uh, for something mm -hmm. in order to, uh, to succeed at it if you really like it, if you really want to do it. Awesome. That's great. And uh, I totally agree. You know, hard work, perseverance pays off. Uh, what is it? An ounce of um, inspiration and 99% perspiration is what Mr. Edison told us. Yeah. I, I don't, you know, I think... Um, I think so many things in my life have been just that you just have to keep working at something, keep reading at something, keep trying something, uh, getting it to work. And you can figure out the hard problems, but, um, and, uh, sometimes it's just a matter of trying, trying things from different perspectives and, and listening to lots of people and, and trying things. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of things I try to learn new, it just takes me a long time. And some people were able just to go to a course, listen to the lecture, then just come back and remember all that stuff and write it again. And, and um, that's why, you know, if you looked at my GPA, I mean, I was not bad, but, but the people that were getting the 4.0s and stuff were, um, you know, a lot smarter, a lot able to pick up stuff and, 
and uh, do it. And, and yet I didn't didn't let that stop me. You know, just have to keep trying and and and, um, mm-hmm. and uh, working towards it. And especially if you if you really want to do something, then I think um, you should ask yourself, um, what would you be the most happy doing in your career if you could do anything? And then mm-hmm. see if there's a way that you can make that happen. When you write your autobiography, or if someone does your biography, can I suggest a title? Sure. Um, Dr. William Perry, comfortable in his jeans. <laughs> 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 and and with that, I think what we'll do is is say, uh, let's get on on the boat and sail on through. We picked up Bill along the way. We're gonna wrap this up for the Big Blue Eighty Two podcast. Thank you so much. Mr. William Perry. Thank you. I can't wait to hear more about this uh, reunion you're planning next year. Oh, yeah. Well, we've got plenty of time for that. Plenty of time for that. Just suffice it to say, it's going to be a big one. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. That's great. I can't wait. I hope more people will uh, be able to find time away from their their jobs and family and to be able to to come back and uh, meet up. Yeah, it's uh, July the 9th of 2022. And we got a lot of stuff still to do to make this magic happen. We are going to have some stand-up 80s video games. We may even have some kind of a tournament. I mean, we're not there for a whole week, so we got to go, like, fastest to a certain score or whatever. We'll figure it out. But thanks again, Bill, for being on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure having you. I tell you, I think we did a marathon. I think we beat out Troy. I'm going to have fun <laughs> editing this thing up because we get a lot in here and you know, I mean, we might just make this the longest one yet. I mean, you had a lot to share, and your career is not over yet. I'm not saying this is the, the, the twilight. You're right in your element. You are comfortable where you are, and I think you're doing great work. And here's another graduate, everybody, that's going to make a major difference for the world, literally. And uh, thanks again, Bill, for being on. Thank you so much for inviting me. All right. Have a great uh, day. Also, if you're interested in being recorded, be on the podcast. Contact me, the host, Vic, at FHS Big Blue 1982 at gmail.com. Once again, FHS Big Blue 1982 at gmail.com. We'll see you next time on the Big Blue. Have a great day. All right, we're going to get started here in three, two, one. So, um, you know, the date wasn't very good, but I liked the movie, so we <laughs> took the family back. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. It doesn't really matter if you're having a good time. Well, what's funny was is that I realized that the first time I saw it, they hadn't put the little episode four thing on there. And then I guess when it was a hit, they went back and put the episode four thing onto the the movie like it was part of a serial you know so oh yeah um, yeah i remember that and i think somewhere i've got um i've got old videotapes of like the stuff before they had gone back and you know modified everything but and we can go as long as you want as long as you're comfortable sure. and you've heard the other yeah so you got an idea how it is you know, I'm, I'm pretty laid back i try to make it interesting and funny and everything but you know sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't um and at the end of the you know, the interview, we'll do the round robin 10 questions mm-hmm. that uh, I asked Jeff. So I'm sure you're thinking a little bit about those things, hangouts, teachers and stuff. Um, 
and that's how we're going to wrap it up. And I'll ask you again. I, I really want to get into this, and I don't want to do too much pre-stuff because I want it to sound fresh and okay. exciting. <laughs> All right, so that's good. Mm-hmm. Any questions before we get started? Um, no, just just run with it. No, nope. you've yes, probably been, you've been interviewed before, I'm sure. In your story career so far, I bet you've had a thousand interviews. No, I really have. I haven't really been interviewed about my career, but I you know I can talk about it intelligently. Well, I'll try. Yeah, of course, intelligently. My ass, intelligently, beyond intelligence. <laughs> um, but what I'm going to say was, um, this won't be a job interview. <laughs> Well, none of them have been, they've all been at least six seconds ago. Harrison, I wonder, working in Star Wars, where you're surrounded with so much hardware and special effects and things that you had to imagine, you didn't actually have the setting there. The first time you saw Star Wars, what were some of your thoughts and your reactions? Well, I was delighted, of course. And very proud of the people that uh, that created it. Grateful to be a part of it. Well, you know, I saw the film with an audience for the first time about three days ago. Sat next to two people who had just were sitting through the film for the second time, and they engaged me in a conversation about the film, telling me how much they enjoyed it and what it was all about. And I asked them a few questions about specifics of why they enjoyed it so much. After the film was over, they uh, they asked me why I had left during the middle of it if I didn't like the movie, and uh, <laughs> they didn't recognize me at all. No, really? no, I've never I've never been recognized. In fact, in my early career, I considered that to be sort of a problem that that characters that I played in different movies it was not acknowledged that that it was the same person doing the doing the job. I bet all that's going to change, though. Harrison, thank you so much for talking thank with you. us today. It's been, it's been a pleasure meeting you. Aren't you afraid the Empire is going to find out about this little operation? Shut you down? It's always been a danger, but it looms like a shadow over everything we've built here. But things have developed that'll ensure security. Mm. I've just made a deal that'll keep the Empire out of here forever.